the Chicago Mafia, John Gotti, Hell's Angels, and Donald Trump? What these people have in common is they have all faced RICO charges. Traditionally used to combat organized crime, the state of Georgia aimed this law at Trump and 18 others to indict them for attempting to overturn the state's 2020 election results. We cut through the red tape to see if these are legit. More importantly, will this continue to help Trump soar in the polls? Rich men north of Richmond made a farmer and his three dogs a viral sensation overnight. Why has it become the official anthem of Blue Collar America? Finally, we embrace debate. Should holy days of obligation become a thing of the past? All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast, and the gang is back together. Josh, hope you had a great vacation, but I'm sorry you had to come back to work. You're too valuable. I'm also with Erica here, and we have another Trump indictment. If you thought it was over, it's not. We're on our fourth indictment right now, this one specifically for his uh, alleged efforts to overthrow the state's 2020 election results. And specifically, he was charged with uh, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act also known as RICO. If there's a reason you recognize that, uh, it was kind of used against gangsters, used against Al Capone back in the day. Um, it doesn't often get used against gangsters, really. It's kind of now used against pro-lifers, ironically enough. But when people hear RICO, they definitely think about, you know, cigar in mouth, crooked Tommy hat, guns. Tommy guns. Uh, and it's now being used against Trump and his supposed allies in Georgia. I believe 18 people were charged. And so some of the charges include uh, solicitation of violation of oath, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer, committing forgery in the first degree, uh, false statements and writings, false filing documents. Uh, there's a bunch of charges. They all sound somewhat similar, but the one that really sticks out is the RICO Act. And so Erica, after hearing these, I mean, is it legit? And why are they using the RICO Act? And, or are, can both be true? I, I'm not sure what's going on. Well, Fannie Willis in Georgia, who's the, the DA who brought the charges and did the big press conference where they announced all this. Trump has 10 days to surrender. August 25th, he's going to walk into a courthouse somewhere, take a mugshot again. And uh, we're up to now four indictments, a total of 91 criminal counts across all four indictments. Of course, we had the, the D.C. case. We had the classified documents case. Um, now we've got uh, Fannie Willis in Georgia. And she's used the RICO Act multiple times. She kind of built a career on using this act. And the point of, of bringing charges under the act and bringing them to a whole group of people back in the 1970s, it was almost impossible to prosecute someone like Al Capone or the heads of mobs. So what they would do is charge the whole group together and then try to get the lower down. So so like the the clerk would get charged with murder that maybe a guy three tiers up actually committed and he was actually commissioned by the mob boss or the head of the mob. So boss, the, 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 I can't talk, the head of the mob. So they would charge all, in this case, 18 people. And then they'd start trying to flip the lower downs because, you know, the clerk doesn't want to get charged with murder. Um, and this is sort of a, a Fannie Willis move here. Very typical. Um, so, you know, reading through the indictment itself, some of them are are stretched. I mean, we've got things included like retweeting a news story or Trump met with the Pennsylvania congressman to talk about the possibility that the, the Georgia election was the results were fraudulent. And, you know, you start questioning, OK, are meetings illegal? Is this really rising to the level of conspiracy? What they're going to have to prove in court is that Trump knew the election results were good. He knew that they were legit. He believed that they were legit. And nevertheless, he tried to bribe or create votes or find votes that didn't exist to overturn those results. That's what they're going to have to prove here. Which I'd imagine is pretty challenging, right? To try to prove someone's knowledge yeah. of... Uh, it'd be hard to do in court. Just right. I mean, because everyone, I mean, he kept saying publicly, oh, this is a sham and I don't believe this. So uh, unless that's all an act, how, you know, like I, I truly, at the end of the day, I believe, I believe that Trump thinks it was stolen from him. I think that's what he thinks. 
So to try to prove the opposite, of course, can be tough. Now, do I think it was stolen? Not in the way that I think he thinks it was stolen, but uh, it's a little bit different. Like I say, all the crimes happened in broad daylight when they changed all the signature verification requirements for ballots and they sent out, you know, ballots to everyone, even if, you know, like you get like four or five, uh, you know, ballots sent to the same address and it was during the pandemic. So someone could fill out four or five ballots and send them in. That's the kind of stuff that that truly was wrong and bad, but it happened in June and July and August and September. By the time all the votes came in November and they get into a big stack and they've been run through the machines and it was all too old, way too late, too late to do anything. And so the results are, how would you consider the results anything but legitimate? That's what happened. Well, I don't think they were legitimate in that sense because I do think there were more ballots cast than, than hearts beating. Um, but it's hard to prove that. And it was, but I, but I believe that Trump thought this is a scam. This is baloney. And I'm thinking to myself, well, am, am I going to need to add really drop the ball in the months before I'm a, what are you getting recode? I'm going to have to add Josh Mercer to this. <laughs> yeah, I know. I yeah. It's a conspiracy. So like to try to prove that he didn't know or that he, he, he thought it was all legitimate and then believe the opposite. I mean, no, I don't think that he believed that it was stolen from him. And that's why he was fighting with every fiber of his being. He, I mean, it wasn't just the obvious stuff, like the entire mainstream media and all of social media networks like Facebook and Twitter at the time, mobilizing like a Death Star to prevent, you know, anything from Hunter Biden information getting out to slanting the news to throttling stories, you know, that are uh, pro-Trump pushing them down and the ones that are pro-Biden pushing them up. All the kind of things that the media were doing to push the levers. To try to make sure this this is a unique threat. Trump is unique. We need to stop him. We can't let him stay in power. Uh, and they wrote about this. Th there's a big Time Magazine article about how all the different mainstream media places and the social media stuff were all in, in cahoots. They were all working together to try to stop this man. And it's like that had never been done before in American history, in our democracy, our republic. The idea that that you would have this mass coordination behind the scenes to try to say, we need to make sure that this person does not get elected because he's basically Hitler. It's so hard to to see video compilations of Stacey Abrams and George, literally the same state, aggressively make statements about how the election was stolen from her. I'm not going to certify it. It was wrong. And, and I knew it was bad. But after watching the compilations, it still shocked me how brazen a lot of that is. And Trump, if anything, just did as much as her, but no one's knocking down her door on a federal indictment level, or not federal, I mean, in this case, Georgia. And uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, in 2016, she, there was a whole uh, controversy about electors and yeah. electorate law during when she Because she's lost. making the case in federal law, in, in federal, she was like, well, she, she's wondering whether or not she could make the case in federal courts that it's an unequal treatment because you have this is the way that electors are are selected in, let's say, Idaho, and this is the way they're done in New York, and it's not the same, and therefore, isn't it illegitimate somehow? And so that's basically the same argument Trump right, was kind of making, Trump's too. Trump's argument. And it's right. like, okay, so you're going to prosecute him for having the same argument that Hillary Clinton had? So key observation here, I think, is that, because I remember this. I remember when Hillary Clinton was doing this in 2016, and everyone cheered her on as, you know, trying to keep elections fair and equal and whatever and trump one man one vote I don't know right questioning down. the same thing is now being called the devil and the end of democracy and so it's just not just that criminal criminal mm -hmm. right indict him right right and, and and here's another thing so right we're on our fourth indictment and it's i just have to imagine this only helps trump right there's there's no other than i guess rising legal costs in terms of persecution arguments there just seems to be no question this is a total persecution argument yeah i mean i think it helps him if there is a majority of americans if trump nation is a large enough percentage of the population that nothing is going to sway them to abandon him right that they respond to the martyrdom thing right i think they argue it's about 20 to 30 percent of the base republican right. base whether or not that's enough remains to be seen. Where I think it's going to continue to hamstring him, though, is not just the, the legal cost, right, but the, the time cost. I mean, we're talking 91 criminal counts at this point against him across the four indictments. 
We're talking hours and hours in court. Um, you know, even if he were to be elected, if he gets convicted on even, you know, two or three of the 91 counts, um, and especially if they're in Georgia, he won't have the power to pardon himself. Uh, you, you know, we're talking, we're talking hamstringing. If, if he were to be elected the next president of the United States, we're talking hamstringing that administration even more than the first one was in the last couple of years. Um, so I think I, I did, well, I just get that last point because mm-hmm. um, the point you're making is that Georgia is going after him on state charges and not federal. Right. Uh, it, it, that will, I don't think that will matter, actually, honestly. Um, if he is elected president, he can pardon himself. And that is absolute. And it will. And he's like, well, those are state Even crimes. Even of the Georgia charges. Yeah, no. Because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Like. Say whatever you will about Trump as a person. The Constitution is set up in such a way that federal courts, federal prosecutors, state and local officials cannot prosecute the president and vice president of the United States, no matter who they are, no matter what they did. We actually talked about this in an earlier episode, didn't we? Yeah. And it's very important, actually. Um, You know, the point of it is, it's like, well, wait a minute. What if... President Biden murdered somebody in cold blood, right? In national television, we all saw him do it. I said, shouldn't the local prosecutor arrest him? I would say, no. No. What would happen is the Congress would immediately impeach him and convict him, and he'd be removed from office. That's the way to remove the president or vice president of the United States. That's the way to do it, because that's us, as we the people doing it, and Instead of giving some local prosecutor the authority to put our president of the United States in jail, no matter who he is, Biden or Trump, we should never allow for that. Now, the point that these people are making all, with all these indictments is Trump is not president. He's a, he's a citizen of the United States. And I, I understand that argument. It'd be one thing if, if um, let's say, a local prosecutor was going after George W. Bush or Bill Clinton. So I'm not even making this a partisan thing. And they said, you know, look. Uh, you never paid your taxes, tax evasion. We're going to book you on a crime, federal courts, you know, and you're going to you're, you're going to go to jail, Bill and George. We found out that you evaded you, you know, did tax evasion. I would not have a problem with that, honestly, obviously, because I think you know you're a private citizen now. You're not president anymore. But it seems quite clear that some of these indictments, a lot of what they're getting at, it seems like they're just looking for crimes, and it feels like the animus behind it is. We need to prevent this guy from getting elected again. Um, actually, I think the Democrats think he won't get elected any, anyway, but we want to we indict him so many times that the base rallies for them and that the independents who don't like Trump will vote no and will win again. Actually, I think that's what they think. Now, here's the problem with that. In 2016, Democrats were like, we need to help Trump get the nomination so that we can beat him. So he can lose, right. It backfired. It did backfire, didn't it? Uh, Sure did. Now, in 2020, I think Trump imposed too many of his own mistakes. You know, like he was a prisoner of his own dilemma. Like he stepped in it too many times, basically. Uh, Pandemic, he was was caught blindsided by all the shenanigans on the ballots. And like I say, I think ballots were flooding mailboxes and stuff like that. But here's the thing. He still almost won. Like it was so close. this close in Arizona, this close in Georgia, this close in Wisconsin. So to this idea that you can't win again, he can't win again if he keeps saying, oh, I was terrible. I was totally screwed out of this. Da-da-da. He wins by focusing on the future and telling the American people, they're coming after me. They, they took the election away from me. I think, yeah, but you know what? I'm more concerned about you and he's got to focus on the future. Have you, have you seen all I the memes do- about him? Like, they don't really, they don't, re- they're not really coming for me. They're coming for you and I'm standing in the it's way. It's absolutely yeah. his best argument. <laughs> yeah, it right? is. And they're so funny because they're so dramatic. Like it'll be a black and white picture of him standing pointing like this. And, but in reality, I mean, it is true sentiment. So, so we move on now into lifestyle. So a, a redhead has taken the nation by storm. His name's Oliver Anthony. And he has written a song called Rich Men North of Richmond. He has somewhat of now the blue collar anthem as it were. Erica, can you go a little bit more into the story and why it's so significant right now? Sure. So we'll link the song itself in the show notes. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's worth a listen. Definitely a cultural moment here. So Oliver Anthony, total unknown ginger, farmer, 
a factory worker living with his three dogs in Farmville, Virginia, on a 90-acre plot with a little deer stand. He recorded this song in front of his deer stand. It was kind of cool. It was like a deer in the background at some point. Really fun. <laughs> and uh, again, unknown guy. He's been writing, singer-songwriter, uh, on the side for a couple of years now. And this small YouTube channel called Radio WB, which focuses on Appalachian music, uh, they go out, they record it professionally with a camera, and they post it. And a Twitter, now known as ex-influencer Chase Steely, uh, who highlights Southern culture on his account, he's fun to follow. Now a lot of people are following him. He posted to Twitter with one word, banger, and just here's the video. And it went viral. Chase Steely was describing to uh, Megan Basham over at Daily Wire. He woke up the next morning and he just couldn't believe we're like at millions of views already and he's like just like viral doesn't even do it justice yeah like it doesn't is, even do it justice because joe that rogan song, reposts it that song has gotten more popular in a shorter period of time like in terms of shooting up on the charts yeah with no producer he was in, in a studio than like taylor swift songs right now exactly he's beating out taylor crazy. swift and jay-z and all those guys so he's yeah uh it's number one on itunes and at the same time the last week another seven of his songs have hit the top 15 so this guy is suddenly overnight sensation, success. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Yeah. and it, No, so, it's the fastest a modern song has yeah. gone viral of all time, I think. Exactly. It's it's, it's fascinating. It, and uh, he, he posted on YouTube his own little backstory, also worth a watch. I'll post it as well. And he talks about- From his truck. Yeah. From, from his, his truck, truck on his iPhone or something. I know, right? like on his phone. And uh, he, he talks about how his music really gave him a purpose a lot. And two years ago- he was a guy who was getting high every night. He's getting drunk, really down. Um, and it's just a kind of a typical Appalachia story of of despair. And uh, that he just one night his music he he found God. He found his Bible. Picks up his Bible, and uh, and it's sort of from there he his life was transformed even before he went viral. So it's a very moving story. Uh, there's a there's another video of him that we've shared that he's at his first concert post going viral at a country fair in Virginia. And he gets up in front of the crowd before he sings Rich Men North of Richmond. He reads Psalm 137. Now, if you haven't read Psalm 137 recently, this is no joke. This is not like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is (laughs) the wicked plot against the righteous and they will be consumed and they will go up in smoke and the crowd goes wild. And you can imagine the reactions on both right and left. To this, uh, to this video of the crowd going wild at the thought of their enemies being consumed in the fire of divine justice and wrath. So, um, also, Fires a me up, really yeah. fascinating cultural moment. He gets a lot of criticism, both from Rolling Stone, no surprise there, but also from <laughs> you know more conservatives. Uh, Mark Antonio Wright, National Review editor, uh, he wrote a pretty critical piece of the lyrics of the song, talking about how um, Oliver Anthony. He's just too negative. Uh, he, you know, he always doing complaining, and really, we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Things aren't, you know, we can fix it. We don't have to just dream about it. I think I think the one thing about that article that really stuck out was, I think he said after reading some of the lyrics of songs, like "My Brother in Christ" in the year year of our Lord twenty twenty three, like if you're working a job that you don't get good pay at, like that's on you, basically. Yeah, you and should I get a new job. Like, oh my! Ooh, ouch! Like, yeah. Learn to code, man. Like, it, it's this guy's typing this probably sipping on a seven dollar latte <laughs> in a nice coffee shop in D.C. And he's like, "Hey, man!" Like, oh, okay. Dude, just to get be fair, to be fair, Mark Mark Antonio, he he was ripped apart on social media for his criticism oh, of destroyed, yeah. Ripped, totally shredded. He did write a response that came out just this morning. I did take some time. He does live in Ohio, so he's. Oh no, okay. he's an Okie. He's an Okie. So he's he's not in DC. He's not on the, the elitist East Coast. He did work his way up from lower middle class. Um, but at the same time, it's still this idea that everyone can pull themselves up in this country by their bootstraps. And I'm just not sure that that's true. Uh y- you know, watching Yeah, I yeah I, I, yeah. I get frustrated by like like uh, a certain segment of conservatives who who are so aspirational and and so worshiping of the market, market economy yeah. that that Personal, they just yeah after. you know that's like I, that's why I thought Tucker's rant on this uh, like a year or two ago 
when he was asking a question with uh, Ben Shapiro was so good. He's like, look, I like the market economy. It's great, but like, it's not a creed. It's not a religion, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And if, and if we need to make adjustments, you know, then we need to do it. Like, for example, you know, like, should we prevent driverless semi trucks, you know, from being on the road? He's like, absolutely. Because if we, if you allow the driverless trucks, he's not worried about the safety necessarily. He's like, you're going to just extinguish uh, an opportunity for the jobs for people who Men have without college only degrees. high school education, yeah. right? Did, who did, didn't have a chance to go to a four-year college. This is a great way to make a living. And if you extinguish that, just increase the profit share on this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. He's not like a, not like Tucker Carlson went totally Luddite and like, let's, you know, throw gears into the system and break down everything and let's not have capitalism. Whereas I'm what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You make adjustments. And even Ronald Reagan, which is like, you know, the, he is the best of them all, right? He put restrictions on Japanese imports because the, all the, they're trying to send over all these cars. So like this idea that you can't step in and intervene at all, like you somehow violated, you know, the oath we all, uh, you know, pledge to capitalism. Give me a break. Well, and I think the point, yeah. the point of the song is that the Richmond, north of Richmond, who are clearly, you know, D.C. elitists, um, that they should step it up and do something and make some corrective measures. And I don't want to read into the song too much. I mean, it's clearly a cry from the heart. It's a, and it's an expression of a deep pain and a deep, you know, even a little anger. I think a lot of the fans of the songs are feeling it's expressing their anger. And the idea that, you know, I think Mark Antonio's line about how this is, this isn't just about the rich guys in DC. This is of our own making. And the answer is, yeah. I mean, that's, in a sense, like there's more responsibility than just the rich guys in D.C. It's a cultural issue. But if you follow, I mean, I grew up on the edge of Appalachia in New Hampshire. My dad would go in. He's a doctor in rural New Hampshire. Once a week, he would go to a clinic in like rural, rural New Hampshire. These are people who they are, you know, the ones who escaped, who were able to get a job and hold it down were lucky. But these are people who, you know, they're addicted to alcohol by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they're, you know, the drug, the drug culture. Oh, opioids this is, just ripped this through This is decades yeah. in the making of what happened in Appalachia. I'm going to link in the show notes. One of my favorite YouTube channels is Peter Santorello, and he goes around to these court, sort of lost communities and interviews people on the street. And he did a recent series on Appalachia uh, going, you know, all the way down from Cherokee County, all the way up north. And it's so eye-opening to see what you know, going all the way back to the coal mining industry, what has happened to these people, especially the young men in Appalachia. And I think like to discount, to discount the anger that has resulted in the devastation of this culture and say, oh, well, this song is just complaining, like, just get a damn job. Like that's, it's not really reading the room. It's dismissive. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, so if obviously this video, this song goes, this wildfire viral and speaks to the hearts of millions of people like that, you would think it would give you pause to try to question your priors and think, you know, I am a faithful adherent to the libertarian free market economic system and everything I love and thou shalt, you know, never question (laughs) supply and demand and all this stuff. You would maybe kind of go, okay, wait a minute, what what am I missing here? Like, why is this connecting, as you say, with so many people's hearts? Like, why is it resonating? And it's not just the capitalism part, which you, you touched on, which is true. It's also this idea that, like, just reading scripture, like he did. And it was funny that you mentioned he, he spoke to that crowd. That was a he. It was a huge crowd, right? He had been at that pl- same place before. There's like 20 people that showed up. It was just like a couple of months ago. And so now he co- shows up and is like a you know gobs of people. And he decides rather than just let me just jump right into my viral hit, and maybe play a few other songs that he would do, as you said read from scripture not just the script it obviously it's not just the verses that he picked that were pretty interesting but just that he decided to go this is our heritage we all used to do this i'm going to quote from the bible i'm going to reference it which was something that was not considered weird 20 some years ago 30 some years ago but now it is i saw some interesting points too on the specific bible verse how so many pastors, I think it was from a Protestant perspective, but I do see this with Catholics as well, are so hesitant to quote anything that might suggest that there is 
a just punishment for, retribution, for wickedness, right? Retribution for wicked actions, and have stuck more to what you said, Erica, of like you know John three sixteen, which I think that I mean I'm a, of course I'm not against quoting John three sixteen, like Tim Tebow was sick. That's good to but know. <laughs> from yeah, like Tim Tebow, awesome, but like yeah. it would be. I feel like it'd be kind of nice. Like, am I crazy for saying this? Like, it'd be kind of nice to hear the full picture of the Bible and like trust that people are mature enough to understand that there are just punishments coming for those doing wicked actions. I know in the song, Richmond, North of Richmond, he's specifically talking about uh, pedophiles that are high up in our government. He, he, he basically calls it by name. I, I can't re- remember the exact lyric, but he was just talking about how one of the things that bothered him the most were that people in power, rich people, were taking advantage of uh, children and mm-hmm. how there's more people in slavery right now than ever before. And a lot of it is, you know, terrible, unspeakable slavery. And that actually really bothers him personally. I think he like pulled off. He said, you know, this is what bothers me. This is why I'm speaking out. This is, you'll hear it in my lyrics. And of course, like all of his stuff isn't angry. He, he has some actually really good songs other than this one. But the fact that this one specifically went viral is a combination of he has an amazing voice uh, and he's, he had powerful, you know, lyrics. Um, but yeah, I, it would be kind of nice to hear, I think, more of a full picture of the Bible and like, like Josh said, normalizing that. I just, it, it bothers me that like, okay, this lyric and this, this verse means a lot to this guy. And so if he wants to share it, it shouldn't be treated like a dangerous, like, yeah, like more power to him. You know, it's, an, it's from the Bible. Like to, to criticize what he's saying is kind of annoying. Especially since our culture is celebrating and cheerleading every weird like thing. I'm totally. attracted to trees. Oh, well, I'm not sure if I'm male, female, or <laughs> I have two spirits. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I believe in the Bible. Oh my goodness. <laughs> shut, <laughs> to the gallows. Just shut him down. Emphasize <laughs> him. To the yeah. gallows. And I also thought kind of of the irony. I, I mean, of course, people are commenting on this culturally because, well, he has a great voice and it was a compelling song and it shot to the, the top. But like, where's Rolling Stone criticizing, you know, rap songs about the female anatomy. Wait a minute. Yeah. And- Wait a minute. Rolling Stone, what is that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lucky man, Josh. Dads with dads with brainworms. But there's so many garbage songs out there today that like talk about way worse than being angry about feeling disenfranchised. Like right. we're talking about murder, rape. We're talking about all of the worst stuff. Get some perspective. And they're all top ten. And they're like, wow, this is a really compelling look into uh, you know, sexual culture of yada yada. And it's like why would you give that like people? I mean, the answer is people just there are real evil forces in the world that hate Christians. No, and question. again, I mean, again, this Tom, is true like, hate Christians. you can point out hypocrisy, but it doesn't matter unless there's a shared right. moral value. And well, that's gone. That is gone. Right. And so our point here is to say that there are like it's not like a conspiracy theory. I mean, look, there are powerful titans of industry in mainstream media in and cultural entertainment that really rev- just absolutely get itchy and repugnant at any expression of religious faith, especially Christian. Um, and it, and we get it. We understand it. And that's why that crowd uh, was so happy to hear someone saying, I, you know, I want to read from Scripture. And it was just in the elation. It's like, yes, someone who's just not ashamed, who's not afraid, and pray for yeah. this singer. I listened yep. to it. I thought it was all right, the song. Um, but I think so many people were just like so thankful that someone had the courage just to be who they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they and that really resonated with them. Um, and, and so, you know, all the more powerful uh, to you, Oliver. God bless you. just you. had such an adorable reaction to of, uh, so Jamie Johnson, for those country fans out there. Uh, uh, I love Jamie Johnson. Mm-hmm. In Color, the classic. He yeah. got up on uh, stage and sang In Color with Jamie Johnson. And the guy just looked like, he was a kid in a candy shop. Like his dreams are just coming true, like before our very eyes. It's like, how could you That's not? That's so cool. I didn't see guy? that. Oh, it's such a great that, clip. Yeah. I mean, he's just yeah. grinning ear to ear, playing on the. Is that the Dobro? He has like yeah, a mix of. Uh, it's a great sound. That's a mix of uh, for bluegrass, yeah. banjo guitar kind of. Yeah, banjo guitar. Little segue. I know I love listening to music. I have no musical talent whatsoever. But I will say this about uh, Oliver Anthony because, you know, that you said that was that bluegrass station that picked it up, and I I, I met a fellow from who's a, a citizen of of Ireland, and he loved to play this little joke on Americans. He goes, you know, can you he would go to people who who are Americans and say, 
you're so proud, America. You got your flags and all that kind of stuff. But can you tell me anything that's authentically American that is down to its bones? And people were just kind of caught flat-footed. And it's like, well, uh, uh, uh. Because we have this experience in a life where you've got the box store like a Walmart and Applebee's, and it's in every town in America, right? And so most people just didn't know what to say. And you go, see, at the end of the day, this is all just a facade. There really isn't anything authentically American. Well, this, this guy decides to pull this question to me, and I wasn't prepped for the question, but I knew exactly what to say. I'm like, um, hello, baseball, <laughs> bourbon, <laughs> jazz, bluegrass, country western movies. All the good like, stuff. Let's go. Like, you know, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, whoa. <laughs> well, <laughs> get it. Speaking of authentic, authentic things, the guy said his influence is Hank Williams Jr. I think my generation has grown up with, and I, I like some of it. Sometimes you say it's all bad, but this kind of like pop infused, very, you know, it's it's Blake not Shelton. authentic. Yeah, right. It's not authentic <laughs> country uh, I don't music like, as no, most I don't people like understand it. It's pop. And what do I listen to all day? Outlaw when country. I'm not working, or even when I'm working sometimes. Outlaw, outlaw country. Outlaw country. Yeah. I like my Bocephus, uh, Waylon Jennings. Well, right, but that's a whole element of this that I, I we haven't even touched on yet. This really felt like it got back to more authentic Hank Williams Jr. Like, how many songs did Hank Williams Jr. sing about getting high, being sad, feeling like well, the man's I mean, getting him down? Like, take this, ch- right. take this job and shove it. Like, that used to be kind of standard messaging. We'll say for, like, like, authentic country, country. But that's okay. No, I, I no, know, but I, I mean, I switched the. I know what you're okay. saying. No, and part of it, I just think that, like, for example, you know, music for so long has been. I just commodified and it's like a production process and you know, they've got the writers and they put someone on stage and they doll them up man or woman and get them out there and do the hits. And it, it's totally manufactured because they know are all the things that make sense. And that's why as much as the seventies are so bad in so many ways, at least seventies music, whether it's country or, you know, disco or rock, it was at least they could do their own thing kind of, and, and then after the, like, the corporate overlords came back in and they're like, no, this is the tried and true formula. This we know <laughs> works. The big bucks. And Let's do music it. has been kind of bland for a long time. So someone like this comes along, Oliver Anthony comes along and is like, here I go. I'm pouring my heart out and I'm breaking the rules and not, I'm not trying to do anything. He didn't try to do anything. Right. From a, from a music production perspective too, like how they used to record music, they didn't tech everything in. So it, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to do vocals now and we're going to do piano we're going to do guitar and the auto tuning separate. that they have now yeah. It's like yeah they just got like back in the day when people recorded stuff they just get in the studio they'd all play together and that's why they were able to kick out so many songs because it didn't have to be so technically perfect and so it kind of reminded me of that era where you know he just was in his backyard basically had a microphone had a little bit of production help but it's not like he was in a studio and each element of the song was recorded differently and it was made perfect it's like it's the best like that's, the That's like the Beach Boys, you know, they recorded Sloop John B like in two hours in one, you know, Brian Wilson's basement, I think. They just like hammered it out. They just did it. I think they had a little sauce in them <laughs> at the time. But, uh, you know, it, it just felt more real, <laughs> yep. you know, like, yeah, we'll get back to that a little bit. That's why, like, when Nirvana did the Unplugged, everyone was like, whoa, this is something different. It's like, yes, you know, try to give us something different every, you know, every once in a while. Like, we don't want the same boring McDonald's hamburger. Like, we want to try something new. Well, it definitely feels like, like when Pete, they, they use the term industry plant, but like, it feels like the industry is looking for a face that's marketable enough and safe enough to turn into something. Instead of someone saying, hey, you know, I have this authentic voice and I'm just going to really put myself in the truest sense of the word out there. <laughs> it kind of felt like this was an example of that. And it's in it. I think that authenticity of the song and the message is what shot it up because it's so easy to tell when it's like, all right, you know, this guy looks like a supermodel and has like the blandest background ever. All of a sudden, oh, he's in front of my face all the time. It's like, well, that's by design, man. Because mm-hmm. parking, you know, I wonder, combined. Tom, what the next step might be because this is for music. So this would be a true grassroots, authentically viral, coming up out of nowhere and becoming a hit, right? Just based on the guy's talent. And is it going to take a couple of years more? But you might get to this point because right right now, where do we see a lot of stale stuff? It's in movies. Like how I, mean, I remember growing up in the '80s, and there were so many movies at the box office. Like, oh, I can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see this. And I get it. Okay, I'm like ten. Everything seems so cool. All right, okay. But like now, I swear it's like 
you could it's just another Marvel movie every right. other it's day. A remake, it's, like, yeah. it's a sequel, it's a prequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's all got the same plot. Four chase scenes. Right. It's like the formula <laughs> is set. They did have yeah. three Rambo five Rambo movies. I get it. They did sequels in the eighties too. I'm not an idiot, okay? But it was like, oh, you know, here's Ghostbusters and here's, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was different things. Like, oh, interesting movies. It's not all just comic book superhero movies. Josh, I have a I have an anecdote for you just to exemplify this. So I was with my father in law over the weekend. He told me about a Stallone movie called Over the Top. Are you familiar with it? I've heard of it. Yeah, I never it's, saw it's it. literally a movie about a truck driver that competes as a arm wrestler, and it's also kind of a father son story. But the guy that he arm wrestles looks like the Hulk, but that was the type of movie that was getting produced in the eighties. Like, could you imagine? Right. A movie done today about an arm wrestler truck driver. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. No way. No. <laughs> Come on. No, now. and part of it is that, you know, we've transitioned. I mean, people have these 52-inch screen TVs in their house, and people are busy with their lives. And so Hollywood is adapted. And I do think, I don't, I'm not condoning Sopranos. I think there's a lot of horrible things about it. And I didn't watch it. But what that was the beginning of like a golden era of TV. And so there's so many more shows out now uh, over the last 10, 15 years that are so much better quality. And what suffered is the box office. So you just don't see these movies anymore because it's too much of a risk. It, and actually, I do agree with what Matt Damon said about this, is that when you would do a movie like in the 90s, you know, mm -hmm. and like a rom-com or something. Or Goodwill you know, Hunting like, was maybe his this breakout, work. right? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be good. Maybe it won't. Who knows? You would have like your big box office premiere where all the actors would go and try to gin up support. You have marketing behind the ads for a movie. And then you would have another a second run at it, you know, when it, in the DVD, DVD market, yeah. <laughs> six or seven, eight months later or whatever. And that would, that would, just the fact that you knew you'd have that coming up behind you was helpful. But now you don't have that. And so it just makes it that much more risk averse for Hollywood. Like, okay, if we're going to put $100 million behind all, signing all these actors, we need to make sure we can guarantee it's going to be a winner. Right. So you get Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. You get <laughs> comic book movies. And I like Fast Mission Impossible. Fast and Furious 7. But it's like you get- the, Yeah, right. You get, yeah, exactly. Fast and Furious 10. It's actually 10. 10. I missed um, a few. <laughs> yeah. I was having babies. Yeah. You, didn't, so, you didn't miss much at all, really. Oh, okay. Good to know. My only point yeah. with this would be, it, it, would, it, would it be possible eventually to start getting more independent movies? So like, you know, there's thought that now- Sound of Freedom. Daily, yeah, Sound of Freedom and the, the Daily Wire is thinking about doing, you know, they've done a, a movie or two. Are you going to get to this point where- People are sick of all these other, you know, commercialized, commodified hamburger, McDonald's hamburger movies that are just one of the same and that they were looking for something new. We'll see. About a strong, independent woman that discovers that her only limitations were the ones she put on herself and that the patriarchy did. Wow, that <laughs> um, sounds really familiar. <laughs> I love That's, that. That's every movie made in the last 10 years. I am actually fired up for Ridley Scott's doing a Napoleon movie. No way. I saw that. Too. It looks really? so sick. Yes, it looks so good. It has uh, Joaquin Phoenix in it, too. Oh, wait, I saw he... the preview. Yeah, yeah, I love Joaquin Phoenix. I'm obsessed he with him. He played Commodus. So yep. it's like kind of getting just the boys that. back together from that. Yeah, uh, the Gladiator. So good. Oh, I love Gladiator. It looks, I mean, it looks awesome. Yeah. I'm fired up. I'm, I'm going to go to a theater for this one. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm already talking about like seeing it with some of my boys because we're all Napoleon fans. We all took West City that's together. A, that's Ish. a seg. We need to side. Ish. 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 <laughs> I, I like on. him because he's short. Napoleon, and he actually wasn't that short. I think he was 5'9". That's true. But, um, yeah, Napoleon doesn't get enough play. Like, everyone talks about Alexander the Great. Everyone talks about the Romans. But it's always like that that Napoleon, like, oh, he's kind of that short king that caused some trouble. Short but, king. like, <laughs> he was pretty close to dominating a lot of the world. So. Yeah. So here at the Loopcast, you know, we're not just a passive podcast. We have actions for you when actions come along. And so the latest quorum that we have on our website is about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. And we do need your help on this. Josh, if you could just give a quick pitch as to what's going on and how that the listeners can help. Yeah, I mean, so this law was passed. And by the way, when Congress was debating this law, Catholic Vote said, stop, don't pass this law. And the U.S. Bishop said, well, wait a minute now, we need to be helping pregnant women who are workers and 
we have reach across the aisle, try to be partisan, especially with Roe, you know, being overturned. Uh, we need to be in a situation where if women get pregnant, they, you know, we don't discriminate against them in the workplace and they get time off and all this kind of stuff, reasonable accommodations for pregnant women. Well, here's the problem. We said, listen, we're talking about the Biden administration here. They're going to use whatever it takes to transform this law into being pro-abortion. And we kept objecting to this. And I, I feel like the U.S. bishops were like, well, you know, didn't really address our concerns. And look, I would love it. I would love it if we were proven wrong. So it does me no favor. It does. I'm not happy about this. But of course, it's like we were right. <laughs> Great. What do we get? A cookie? No. I mean, we're not happy about this. This is terrible. What the what the Biden administration is putting is promulgating a proposed rule that would say, by the way, every employer in the country with 15 or more workers has to provide accommodations for pregnant women, even those pregnant women who are seeking abortions. That's right. There are, by the way, no religious exemptions in this. So if you're a Catholic employer and you hire a Protestant or a Hindu or whoever, uh, you can't claim religious exemptions. Like, you know, you have to let them take time off to get an abortion. Give them reasonable accommodations. So everything we warned about is happening. Now, of course, we think, obviously, this, this, this proposed rule should, should not come to pass. We don't want it to actually occur. Um, and we're not just doing, we told you so. Listen, we want you to come online Go to our Quorum Action Center. Uh, you can, there's a link in the show notes. You can go to catholicvote.org. You can find the link there. And there's a trial, uh, uh, there's a period of 30 days in which all citizens are, are allowed to make a public comment. Now, we give you some comment, some, uh, some bullet points, some, some things to think about. But what we really need you to do, here's where you can make a difference. If you take the time to read what we said and write it in your own words, that's what's really big. Write it in your own words. Why you object to this proposed regulation, this proposed rule. Why you think this would be bad. Why you think any rule should have accommodations for religious employers, obviously at a bare minimum, but that in general, it should not be applied towards abortion at all. The whole purpose of this was to take care of pregnant workers, not people who want to terminate and, and, and kill their baby. So... Why does it matter that you say it in your own words? This is the key thing here. If they get 10,000 comments, the federal government gets 10,000 comments on this, they can just, if all the comments are the same, they can just go, oh, well, these are all the same and just throw it in the trash can. They, they'll just consider it one comment. But if you each get on there and write it in your own words, add a little bit of your own experiences maybe, make that comment unique, then every unique comment Federal regulators are required to read. Now, this is a big thing. We could kind of slow it down, right? We already have 12,563 members of Catholic Vote who have gone through this process, who have taken the time to write unique comments. We're going to make sure they do consider our thoughts, that they do consider our opinions. We may not be able to stop it, but we might. We don't know. And here's the thing. Why does it matter? Slow it down and give people, get, talk it up with your friends. And then members of Congress and their staff members will have the opportunity to say, now, wait a minute now, you received 20,000, let's say, comments about this that were against it. Why did you still do it? You know, so we need to build the case for why this is a bad thing. We have comments in there. We have bullet points to share with you. Honestly, people say, I don't know, I, I'm concerned what's going on with our country and I don't know what to do. This is what you could do. Five minutes of your time. We're not asking for a donation here. Honestly, just do it. If you want to help us out and spread the word, that would be great. But honestly, I need your three, four, five minutes here. It can make a difference. Amen. All right. Reach it. run through a brick wall. And while you're on the website, drop us, a, drop us a five stars. Uh, leave us a review. Helps the program. Appreciate the time. Uh, we don't have a ton of time to talk about this, but I do want to bring it up. Please pray for uh, what's going on in Maui. There were obviously just uh, devastating wildfire or de devastating fires that ripped through and uh, took out a lot of the 
uh, indigenous land that's been there for many, many years. They've kept it kind of a little bit. The tourists come visit, but it's kept in the same condition for many, many years. And really sad to see that kind of history just go up in smoke. So uh, pray for yeah. Maui. Uh, we got the, a we got a story coming on that. Our friend, my friend Jason Jones, prolific activist. He's from Hawaii, so he's going to try to do his best to help out. So good. We're going to have a link on our website soon, CatholicVote.org, on that. Yeah, and, and a little bit inc- encouraging. You know, Our Lady of Victory, uh, Maria Lenakila Catholic Church uh, appears to have avoided the destruction somewhat miraculously. It's like fire comes right up to it and stops. So I always like to acknowledge some of those everyday miracles that you see, and it's just so funny. We see so many of these things. And maybe it just sweeps by, but it's, this is no accident. You know, it doesn't have an accident. So please pray for Maui. Uh, We are going to move into the twilight zone now. Erica, you are up first. Yeah. So this is. Actually, my twilight zone is two seconds. Go for it. It's, it's, (laughs) the media come up to Joe Biden on the beach in Delaware. It's like, what, can you say something about Maui? No comment. Walks away. No comment. Now, George W. Bush was raked over the coals about Katrina. The hurricane there in, in New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you could appeal to hypocrisy if they actually cared about our country. Right. Or if he was in a mental state. I, I don't even know if he knew what he was asked, which is unfortunate that we're at this I'm place in our country. Media, but at this point. So yeah. Mm. All right, Josh, you knocked off the twilight zone. We move on Thanks, to Erica. Check. It's good to uh good to get those things in and out. Yeah, so this week, of course, we celebrated the solemnity of the assumption of the Blessed Mother into heaven. One of my favorite feast days, because like, you just think about it, Mary's body is physically right at this second in heaven. Like she she is somewhere with her body. That's just, it blows my mind. Moving on from that, however, someone else was not so impressed by the metaphysical implications of this dogma of the church. Teresa Macaron, I believe I'm going to butcher her name. Uh, Teresa Macaron, Twitter influencer, ex-influencer, Posted on the Holy Day of Obligation, unpopular opinion alert. So she's about to say something radical, right? It's going to change Twitter. Holy Days of Obligation should be a thing of the past. A declining membership base, worsening priest shortage, and demanding corporate culture that puts profits and productivity over workers' health and safety. I think she means that like priests have a lot of responsibilities now in their job. will soon push the church to eliminate Holy Days. Now, one might think that perhaps the best way to combat declining membership base would be to send a message to your membership base that the practice of the Holy Catholic faith is actually important and matters, or that the teachings of the church are fun. I like not fun, but like are deserving of a setting aside of your attention, of your attention, and of setting aside your workaday world for a day of leisure and worship. Now, the British tried this, right? Remember Oliver Cromwell? He, he tried this, eliminating holy days in England. It was not a good plan because what are holy days? They're a day of rest. If you work for a Catholic organization, it's usually a day off of work or at least time to go to mass with your family. Um, it's a day to celebrate, eat good food. If it's a Friday, you get to eat bacon. I mean, these are great <laughs> days. So talk about just Debbie Downer channeling Oliver Cromwell and Soviet Russia and revolutionary France where they were like, let's have a 10-day work week. Come on, Teresa. I was, I was just confused. She didn't really offer like, holy days should be a thing of the past, but then she didn't offer really why they should be a thing of the past or like what it would improve, what would become better if they do I guess priests wouldn't have to say mass. It was ridiculous. I don't know. It was I a mean, dumb tweet, confusing. but I'm just like, come on, I, leftist I, Catholics. I, I don't know. I have kind of All a right, hot Josh, take on this. Here it tell comes. us. I don't know, man. Like sometimes I, 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 I totally disagree with a lot of what she's saying. But she said one thing, brother. Sometimes I'll just provocatively say to some of my friends, like, "What if the church only had fifty-three days you were required to go to church every Sunday at Christmas, and that's it? Like All Saints Day." Assumption, what if they weren't a holy days of obligation? And people are like, what are you talking about, Josh? I thought you were so conservative. Why are you, you sound like a liberal. You sound like Teresa Macaron. Maybe, and I'm not even sure I'm set in my way on this one, but it just to me, it's like, what is the price of, um, uh, of obligating this as a holy day of obligation? If you don't go to Mass on Thursday, November 1st for All Saints Day, 
and you're Catholic, you've just committed mortal sin. Like you are obligated to go. Grave matter, it is, right. It's a grave matter. And so why is it that you have three masses on Sunday, but then All Saints Day comes along and you have one mass? You are already expecting that you're only going to get a third of the people to show up. That is a and problem. It's like, well, that's a problem. They don't, they, it's not a mortal sin if they don't know. So I'll just kind of make sure they don't really realize it. So they'll whisper, and don't forget on Thursday, it's a holy day of obligation. I've actually had a priest say that. He's like, I just won't tell and them. They, yeah, no, it, that's not the that's solution. That's not the answer. Not the solution. So, so like, so like the priests are like, well, wait a minute, there's an incentive to like not let them know that they'll be committing mortal sin. So we'll leave them blissfully ignorant. To me, that's not the answer. Wait, so you think the answer is to eliminate it? I would rather you eliminate them so that people are, are not, and, and then just say, listen, let's use a carrot rather than a stick. Like, try to say, hey, you know, it, the same way, like, if you go through the holy door and you get indulgences and, like, this is good for, your, good for you, it, it's like a pilgrimage, it's a sign that you're, that you're expressing your faith in a better way rather than using the, the language of obligation and punishment which is how it's interpreted. I understand it's not just punishment. Okay, I get it. But to me, it's like, if we consider these things to be truly, you know, a, a mortal sin if you don't perform it, like if you, like, okay, it's a mortal sin if you eat meat on a Friday during Lent, right? It's a mortal sin. Grave matter. So here's the thing. If these things are grave matters, then why are we having confession on Saturday afternoon from 3 to 3.35? Right. Okay. Why are we only having one mass on Erica you know, All Saints okay. Day? So let, let Erica go I, off. I, I just, see what I, you're saying. I don't know. I'm just asking. Josh, like, I, I see what you're saying. So, like, let's. Why would we ratchet up more, more occasions of grave matter that could be mortal sin? Okay, I get it. However, the, the church isn't like this. <laughs> I don't think the solution is to say let's let's just do away with with these being grave matter it should be let's start preaching about sin again let's start preaching about redemption retribution the final judgment let's start preaching about the joy of the mercy of god and let's start offering confession sure. three times a day seven days I, a week like that's I, increased well, confession I don't know about that but like more more than just once right just before every mass like 15 minutes every mass gosh if i could ask you really quick um I feel like practicing NFP is really hard, and by contracepting, uh, it'd be so much easier, and we would w people wouldn't have to worry about the grave sin element of that, of course. So why don't we just allow people to contracept? That's different. Uh, yeah. Let me make sure everyone understands my point. I think the most dangerous element of all of this is the priest is like, well, if they don't know it's a mortal sin, then I'll kind of de-emphasize I'll just say it's a holy day of obligation. So I fulfilled my requirement, my base requirement, and that if that person hears it, doesn't realize it, then we're then we're kind of okay. I think that's the worst scenario. Like, you need to tell people, look, we kind of look with respect and admiration at Muslims who are so committed to their faith that they pray five times a day, they face east, they have a special like rug in which they do it on, you know, like, and we're like, gosh, that's really Go get it. Go for it. And so, Josh, if you admire that, why are you turning around and say we should be less so? I'm not saying that we should be less so. I'm saying if you're going to do it, do it. Yeah, do it big. Commit to it. Right. Explain why you do what you do. Right. Like, like it's not. There's nothing intrinsically immoral, Im immoral about eating a hot dog on a Friday in Lent per se. It's that the church has this request that you respect and the the Lord's sacrifice on Friday that you offer that up as a sacrifice. It's not intrinsically evil for you to eat that hot dog. Right. But we want to send a message that we love Jesus and we have these prescriptions, that we have these policies in place to show that we are intentional about living as a Catholic. Right, and to set, and so that to means set our lives apart. All Saints Day matters, that the assumption matters. And that we make it matter, and we don't go. Oh, it's a holy obligation. And that's that's your answer. That would be your answer to like the contraception question about like intrinsic evil, or like abortion, for example. Well, I think like, those the difference the difference evil. not to like get off on a tangent here, but the difference between the contraception issue and the holy day of obligation issue is that the contraception is intrinsically evil, right? Like 
The Contraceptive Act is an right. intrinsic evil, whereas the Holy Day of Obligation is a regulation it's of not the church. Evil. Right. So right. what Josh right. is saying right. is this is a regulation and maybe one solution is to make it more of an, a natural expression of our deep love of the Holy Catholic faith than to say, here's all these rules. The problem, the other problem there is that we tried this, right? The U.S. bishops have moved so many holy days of obligations. Like how many dioceses now? Yeah, like Holy Ascension Thursday has moved to Sunday. They cut down the American holy days of obligation to, you know, how ma however many from X to Y. And it was part of this secularization I'm of so the Catholic Church. I'm so loaded for Church. bear on this. Right. And, and it didn't go very well. I just want to point out what was the result? Total loss of faith. Church is shrinking, loss of vocations. And I'm not saying like correlation is causation. It was a part of a whole. There are two things that totally drive me bonkers about the Catholic faith in the United States. Number one, that we move the ascension to Sunday. It is a historical fact. He, would, there's 40 he days. went up to heaven on the 40th day. Like if there's anything you could do, like do not do this. Number two. The sun, the the Monday Saturday rule. These days are are holy days of obligation, unless it's a Monday or a Saturday. I can't expect you to go to church two days in a row. That is the worst. Like, do you believe it or do you not? If you do believe it, then make it count. And if you do make it count, say it matters. Tell them why it matters, and be generous with forgiveness. And if and, and you know, like, hey, look. My boss will not let me get out of work. And then you say, okay, you tried? Yes. Okay, well, it's not a mortal sin. You know, you're free. You know, like you at least tried. You made the effort and you were prevented. And maybe off, offer masses early in the morning so that they could try to remedy it or whatever. But that's how you deal with this. Not saying, oh, just do you believe it or not? That's, that's why so many people have respect for like Muslims or Hindus when they fear, hear about all their different, oh, you don't eat cows? Why is that? Oh, that's just, okay. Oh, because you believe it. That's interesting. That's kind of neat. Okay, but you're... They don't say that about our own faith because we're taking it seriously enough. You're, you're taking a leap with the Muslims, I think, because you're simultaneously saying we have too much of a stick uh, in Catholicism for Holy Days, but then you're also saying, oh, these Muslims just have such pure, unbridled, like, love and adulation for their culture and, and beliefs. I think there's a lot of stick in Islam, too. No question. I ask like, there's more. No, there's no, much no, more stick in is, Islam. Mm -hmm. So why, but why, why is I, it that Christians... Why is it that so many Christians look at Muslims and their rigorous, rigid rules and customs and regulations and say, wow, they're really committed to it. That's really good. And yet here in our country, our bishops are like, oh, we can't expect you to go to mass two days in a row. That's, but that's just, that's why I'm fine with the stick. Like, I, I think if okay. we offer well, more masses. My point with it is we don't, we have, my problem with the Catholic faith is that we have the stick on paper, but not in practice. It's right. like, if you believe it, then then finish the sentence and do it. So if you say, we think the Assumption of Mary is such an important event that we need to celebrate it every year and we are requiring you to go because this is central to our faith, then say it like that. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, it's a holy day of obligation. Oh, okay, I guess I'm supposed to go. There's one Whatever. mass at 10 a.m. you forget about right. it. Yeah. Okay, so... My Twilight Zone, yeah, deep breath, deep breath. My Twilight Zone, I'm going to send us on a good one. So I'm going to read a tweet here. Uh, investing in America means investing in all of America. When I ran for president, I made a promise that I would leave no part of the country behind. So if you just hear that and you don't see it, you might think that President Biden maybe tweeted that out. Um, but instead, it came from the official press secretary uh, Twitter account, Corrine, uh, KJP is what I'm going to call her because I can't really pronounce her name. Uh, and so it appears that a White House intern may have sent from the wrong account. You know, we've all been there before. You're trying to tweet out on the burner and, you know, accidentally go on the wrong one. So I think it has revealed that neither President Biden or KJP tweet from their actual accounts. And uh, update, it was deleted almost immediately, but it got viewed 31,500 times, which is enough for screenshots. <laughs> so uh, we have the reports. On, to no surprise of anyone, President Biden doesn't send his own tweets, um, which would be pretty obvious if you follow him or read anything really from that account. So uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a weak sauce. I think it's a weak sauce. Weak sauce what? Weak sauce uh, selection for Josh. You come uh, on to you come back into my show uh, after a week 
and you come in hot and you're like, that's not good enough Twilight Zone, Tom. I'm gonna He's call challenging like you to greater things, Pogo. Tom, you can do better. I know you. That's good stuff. Look, I'm gonna tr- I'm I'm gonna roast you on my burner account, mm-hmm. which no one knows about. Hey, I do. Okay, since, pure delecto. Speaking of interns, I do just want to take a shout out moment here to our summer intern Rosie Hall, who uh, who did all of our research over the summer for this show. She did a lot of the show notes too. So thank you, Rosie. It was a great summer. Yep. And uh, good summer. We're we miss you. Looking forward to getting you back here. So come yeah, on. Yeah, we board. have some ki- we have some killer interns. That's not a twilight zone. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. Um. So that does it for this episode of the Loopcast. If you want to support the program, things you can do: uh, rate the show, review. We got some cool reviews. We're over 300, so Josh, you don't have to fire me. Uh, Spotify, we're at 96. So if you're listening on Spotify right now and you would like to be the 100th review, uh, you have the opportunity to right now. Uh, We're making the push to, so we're at 311 on Apple Podcasts. We're making the push next to 350. Uh, It's really easy. You can just hit five stars. You don't even have to write anything. Um, If you're going to write one, you could just stay at home. But uh, other than that. Write a review. Say Tom could have done better on that. Say Tom, (laughs) yes. Comment Tom could have done better. On this week's Josh is off his rocker on Holy Days stuff. Yeah, Josh Josh took too long on the Holy Days, so Tom really had to slide in a bad one. Um, but yeah, if you want to help the show, that's the best way to do it. You can email us at loopcast at catholicboat.org for suggestions, uh, comments. I do enjoy answering those. And uh, this week, for the bonus, if you can't get enough Loopcast, I got to talk to Benedictine College's president, Stephen Menace. Uh, how do I even describe him? He's a legend. Uh, he remembered my name. And I visited one time for a siblings week like four years ago. So he's kind of savant with names. Uh, Benedictine College is doing some really amazing things. And the traditions there are like none I've heard of. So if you want to go over and listen to that one, that one's the one before this, the bonus episode. You can also find it on YouTube. But until then, uh, we will see you next Thursday. Uh, We sign out with Our Lady Guadalupe, St. Thomas More, and St. Fidelis. Pray for us. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye, guys.